Welcome to Evidence-Based Radio. It is Friday night, and that means it is time to talk about science and skepticism and how to read population versus uh, individual level risk factors. But we'll get to that at the end of the uh, show. (laughs) So um, as always, you can find me throughout the week at uh, the Facebook page, which I do try and update fairly regularly. I know I put several things up there this morning. Sometimes it's just really pretty pictures. So uh, some African wild dog pups and some really beautiful cranes this morning. But also I do try and put up some things that are more visual or that I just know that I'm never going to get to uh, since I only have about 50 minutes to bring everything that I want to bring to you each week, it can sometimes be hard to decide what to talk about. And so I do try and put some of that stuff on the Facebook page instead. And you can also find this and previous shows as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. And so those usually go up on a Sunday afternoon. So let us start tonight with a new interesting study. It actually sort of revisits and confirms one of the great examples of evolution in action. And so this is the evolution of coloration in the peppered moth. Now this is such a famous case that Charles Darwin himself used the peppered moth as an important example for the development of his theory. Now, the moths developed what is called uh, euphemistically industrial melanism. (laughs) And what that actually means is that they started to favor darker uh, coloration, basically because everywhere was polluted with coal soot. And so the trees that they had once been on used to be light, and then they became darker and darker uh, as coal was used in the early days of the Industrial Revolution. So basically, uh, if you know anything about the early Industrial Revolution, especially in England, uh, it was just a giant cloud of coal dust everywhere and... Uh, It was pretty poisonous and awful. And um, yeah, (laughs) I just hope we don't end up going back there very soon. Uh, Goodness knows with what is going on today. But uh, originally, the moths were pale in order to blend in with lichen that would have been on the tree bark. But the peppered moths became darker. And I should say because not became, but there were some that were already darker. And then as this happened, the ones that were darker lived longer. And so then were more successful in passing down their genes. They didn't just become darker. Uh, That's sort of a Lamarckian idea that they would just adapt themselves. Uh, But that's not actually what was happening. And so I just want to be a little more precise in my language there. Uh, and so basically, the, the darker moths won out as coal pollution killed that liking, that lichen, excuse me, and uh, again caused the bark to be darkened by soot. And since 
at some point, clean air legislation was actually enacted uh, for the people, obviously, and not the moths. Um, this led to the recovery of the lichen, and therefore the moths that had been light actually started to, again, be more prevalent because they were once again more adapted to blending in with the trees. This is one of the most iconic examples of evolution used in biology textbooks around the world, yet fiercely attacked by creationists seeking to discredit evolution, said Professor Martin Stevens of the Center for Ecology and Conservation at the University of Exeter's Penryn campus in Cornwall. Remarkably, no previous study has quantified the camouflage of peppered moths or related this to survival against predators in controlled experiments. Using digital image analysis to simulate bird vision and field experiments in British woodlands, we compared how easily birds can see pale and darker moths and ultimately determined their predation risk. Our findings confirm the conventional story put forward by early evolutionary biologists that changes in the frequency of dark and pale pethoprofs were driven by changes in pollution and camouflage. Whew, that is quite the quote. <laughs> and so basically what they found is that uh, the birds definitely responded in a way that would have been expected. And uh, so they are able to see, first of all, birds are actually able to see a wider variety of colors than humans. Uh, so they can generally see ultraviolet light. And so the researchers wanted to see how the birds responded to the two types of moths and see if there was a difference also in the ultraviolet spectrum. Uh, and so what they did was they used specimens collected by Bernard Kettlewell, uh, who had apparently studied the moths quite extensively and conducted important research on them in the 1950s. Through a bird's eye, the pale peppered moths more closely match lichen-covered bark, whereas darker individuals more closely match plain bark, said first author Olivia Walton, who conducted the research as part of her master's degree at Exeter. They also created artificial moths, which they deployed in forests. They found that lighter models had a 21% higher chance of not being eaten by birds. We provide strong direct evidence that the frequency of the peppered moths form of the peppered moth forms stems from differences in camouflage and avian predation, providing key support for this iconic example of natural selection, Professor Stevens said. So if you are ever in a discussion with a creationist and they bring up peppered moths and there are all sorts of arguments against it and I could get into it, but um, it's not necessarily really interesting to get into some of the things that they object to are just silly. So some of the pictures that were shown in the original um, talk about this in the original papers, some of the moths were apparently... Uh, posted onto or pinned onto bark and somehow that is supposed to have disproved the entire theory. It's very weird, but uh, just know that this is absolutely 100% proven. Uh, obviously not 100%, nothing is 100% in science, but it is very well documented and uh, it is definitely evolution in action. 
and uh you know and if somebody tries to tell you to differentiate between macroevolution and microevolution tell them no <laughs> there is no discernible difference between the two other than the time scale so yes there is a uh sort of practical difference between macroevolution and microevolution and so we talk about them in different ways because they have different mechanisms um because the time scales are different but as far as the theory of evolution both macro and micro evolution are covered under evolution you can't have one without the other they are the same thing <laughs> uh and so yeah that is definitely something that creationists try to do they try and concede that they believe in uh in microevolution but not in macroevolution and so they'll say oh yeah I, I understand that like the moths changed but that doesn't mean that they you know no moth ever became you know a tarantula <sighs> um let's not get out into the weeds of evolutionary debates for tonight because we've got lots of other things to talk about but it can be very frustrating so let us actually move on and so we are going to talk about a pair of stories that have to do with parrots. Now, of course, normally we talk about corvids here, but I suppose I should allow some of the other smart birds a moment or two as well. Uh, this first story is actually about people, really. It just is about uh, people using feathers from a parrot. But uh, anyways, let's actually get into it. So scarlet macaws are rare and beautiful birds with red, blue, and yellow feathers. And so a settlement discovered at Pacuime in Mexico, uh, referred to as Casas Grande, uh, seems to have been a breeding place for scarlet macaw parrots between 1250 and 1450. However, this doesn't really help with what we're talking about tonight because this was after the time when the people of Chaco Canyon uh, were already using the birds for ritual practices. And part of the reason why that is sort of vaguely problematic is that they are very far north of the Macaws range. And despite Yet despite that, remains of the bird's feathers, along with turquoise, shells, and copper bells, have been found in concentrated areas of Pueblo Bonito, especially in burial sites of elites. Stephen Plogg, an archaeologist and professor of anthropology at the University of Virginia, noted back in 2015 that birds are in part agents with the power to convey messages. They could bring rain or favorable conditions through their interactions between the earth and the powers that be. It's also believed that the different colors of feathers represented different directions. So for instance, red was for south, blue or green was for west, um, and etc. He notes that scarlet macaws actually continued to be an important an important part of Zuni culture, uh, which is kind of an offshoot, the, the, the evolution of uh, Southwest uh, Native American cultures. The Zuni came after the Puebloans. And uh, so they continued to prize scarlet macaws right up until uh, 
probably the present day. Um, so definitely into deep into the 20th century, at least. And so what we're talking about right now is that there is apparently some sort of undiscovered breeding site, either in the American Southwest or Northern Mexico, which would have been the center for this earlier uh, need for birds that would have been supplied to Chaco Canyon between 900 and 1200 CE, which was kind of the uh, high point of the uh, Puebloan civilization. So they needed a lot of the bird feathers because apparently they were very prized and important uh, for these people. Richard George, a graduate student in anthropology at Penn State, notes that we were interested in the prehistoric scarlet macaw population history and the impacts of human-directed management, especially any evidence for directed breeding or changes in the genetic diversity that could co-occur with different trade networks. So basically, they were looking at the birds' remains in order to figure out were they being bred somewhere close, were they literally coming from far away through these trade networks what was happening um, because there were clearly some sort of trade network going on there had to have been some way that the people in the uh in chaco canyon even knew about scarlet macaws in order to prize them uh, someone must have come to them from the south and brought this you know probably just a cache of the beautiful feathers of these uh, birds, because if you look at them, they are incredibly beautiful birds. Um, and so the researchers knew that the people in Chaco Canyon themselves were not breeding the birds because they didn't find any evidence of eggshells, pens, perches, anything like that among the ancient Puebloan ruins. So what the researchers did was they sequenced the DNA of 20 scarlet macaw specimens, and it turns out they were able to obtain 14 samples of mitochondrial DNA. So, you know, when you're dealing with old specimens, you don't always, unfortunately, uh, you're not always able to recover usable DNA. So of those 20, they were able to find 14 good samples. And so carbon dating of the remains placed them in that 900 to 1200 uh, time period. We looked at the full mitochondrial genome of over 16,000 base pairs to understand the maternal relationships represented in the Chaco Canyon and Mimbres region, said George. Now, as I'm sure you know, uh, mitochondrial DNA is only inherited from the mother as opposed to nuclear DNA, which is a combination of contributions from both the mother and the father. Scarlet macaws in Mexico and Central America have five haplogroups, and so a haplogroup represents organisms with genetically similar but not identical mitochondrial DNA lines. Those are then divided into different haplotypes, which contain identical mitochondrial DNA lines. So they found that all of the remains belonged to haplogroup 6, and that 71% of the birds shared one of four specific haplotypes. The chances of these animals having been wild-caught, therefore, is very slim, especially since this is actually a smaller haplogroup, so there aren't as many of them out there that they could have found. 
The researchers therefore concluded uh, that there must have been a breeding site that these birds were coming from that we have yet to discover. These birds all likely came from the same source, but we don't have any way to support that assumption without examining the full genome, said George. However, the genetic results likely indicate some type of narrow breeding from a small founder population with little or no introgression or resupply. Uh, And so basically what that suggests is that somebody got hold of some birds and they brought them much closer to Chaco Canyon probably. And uh, that was sort of the population that they kept breeding from and they didn't really then have ties back to uh, get more birds. So it's really interesting. It would be really fascinating to actually find this place. According to Douglas Kennett, professor and head of anthropology at Penn State and co-director of the project, the next step will be to analyze macaws from other archaeological sites in Arizona and northern Mexico to narrow down the location of this early breeding colony. So hopefully they will be able to find this place and figure out what exactly was going on there because it's really interesting again it's this really fascinating thing where these people who you know we generally don't think of as being incredibly sophisticated really had these amazing uh trade ties and were able to you know breed animals uh you know there was a lot of breeding of birds in ancient mesoamerica uh turkeys uh parrots things like that and uh so yeah they were doing amazing things um I definitely wouldn't want to live in any of those ancient uh, civilizations because it was still very easy to die from pretty much anything. Um, And, you know, no running water uh, in most places, even though some ancient civilizations did actually have running water. Um, Some really ancient ones that you, uh, you know, it's it's rather surprising, but nope, they totally had running water uh, thousands and thousands of years ago. But, uh, I would really love the opportunity to be able to go and visit some of these places uh, via some sort of time machine. But of course, I don't actually believe that that's possible, sadly, Um, or not so sadly, considering (laughs) I read that Ray Bradbury story uh, when I was young. Um, If you know about it, the one about uh, the dinosaurs and the butterfly, and it's all, it just all goes terribly wrong. (laughs) So, um, yeah. But definitely the people in the past were just as smart and interesting as we are today. Uh, Some of them probably more so than some of the people we know today. Uh, But let's move on and talk about another story about parrots. So this is one about modern parrots uh, and the non-vocal communications that they may have. So this is actually talking about the blue and yellow macaw which is a member of the genus Ara, which is one of six genera of macaws found in Central and Southern America, in South America, I should say. The species is found in South America from Venezuela to Brazil, in Bolivia, Colombia, and Paraguay. It's also found in Mexico and in Panama in Central America, but apparently only in Panama and Mexico, oddly enough. It is another extremely striking parrot. These parrots are so beautiful. Uh, And so basically this parrot has blue 
sort of an aquamarine blue along the top side of the wings and the body and this really beautiful bright gold on the underside of the wings and body with a green cap of feathers on the head. The birds feature a bare patch of skin around the beak and eyes and they have sort of uh, little black ridges uh, that I'm not sure if they're feathers. I think they might be tiny feathers. It's kind of hard to tell. And so a new but small study looked at five captive blue and yellow macaws interacting with each other and with humans. So they looked at both their feather positions, whether they were ruffled or sleeked on the crown, nape, and cheeks, as well as the presence or absence of blushing on their bare skin. So there's actually a picture and you can see that they blush like humans. You can see the pink because their faces are very white. And then when they flush, uh, when they blush, they, it flushes pink. <laughs> so I just, I was like, that is amazing. I've never seen, uh, I've never noticed that a bird could blush like that. And so it's interesting and new to the researchers as well. So they found that feather ruffling was more common when the birds were resting or engaged in social interactions that did not involve a lot of movement. They also noted that crown feather ruffling and blushing were both more common when the researchers were interacting with the birds directly, so basically maintaining eye contact with them and talking to them because, you know, they're parrots, <laughs> um, and there was less ruffling and blushing when the researchers were in the room with the parrots but not directly interacting with them, so things like having their backs to them and doing something else but the bird was still in the room. Although caution must be exercised when interpreting these data due to the small sample size, we argue that crown ruffling and skin color variation may provide facial indicators of birds' inner subjective feelings, said Dr. Aline Bertin, a researcher at the INRA Centre Val de Loire at the University of Tours in France. Uh, I'm sorry for my pronunciation. <laughs> On a practical level, parrots are popular companion animals, with millions of parrots being kept as pets, and understanding visual communication in parrots may help to assess their well-being in captive conditions. Blushing may not be a characteristic unique to humans. The featherless cheek of the blue and yellow macaw reveal rapid skin color changes in situations associated with motion. The macaw's particularly complex face may enable communication of emotion via color and feather displays. So that is very cool. And they are really beautiful birds. I think it was, uh, I think it might have been a blue and yellow uh, macaw that was the famous bird that people have probably uh, been talking about. It's been all over Facebook. Facebook, the bird in, I think, England, where uh, somebody called because it had been on a roof for several days. And uh, apparently this bird is fluent in English, Turkish, and I can't remember what the third one was, um, but three languages. And apparently uh, they called in the fire brigade because they were worried about it. And the fire brigade uh, got up to the top of the roof and said, uh, what the owner had said to say was that, you know, I love you. Come, 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 let us help you. And the bird apparently told them to uh, expletive off. <laughs> and uh, so, yes, it was very funny. And um, apparently the bird was totally fine. It did that. And then it flew off because apparently it was 
just enjoying hanging out on the roof for three days. Uh, and I guess it eventually basically went home. <laughs> so, you know, it would be great to be able to learn how to communicate with these obviously very smart birds uh, better. Okay, so let us take a break for some PSAs and some show promos, and then we will come back and talk about something completely different. We are going to come back and we're going to talk about Steve. So hang on for just a moment. You don't let your kids play in the toilet. That's what it's like when pet owners don't pick up pet waste. Irrigation and stormwater can carry this pollutant to storm drains and retention areas where our children play. Do the right thing. For yourself and your community, pick up after your pet. Bag it and properly dispose of it in the trash. Remember, only rain in the storm drain. Brought to you by Stormwater Outreach for regional municipalities. Visit storm at www.azstorm.org. Storm and Bass with DJ Fife is on 8 o'clock on Saturday night. We roll from 8 o'clock to 10 o'clock on Valley Free Radio, WXOJLP, or online at valleyfreeradio.org. Join the 8 o'clock Drum and Bass Association by listening to Drum and Bass with DJ Fife, 8 to 10 Saturday nights. The Lily Library is filled with adventure and wonder for kids and adults of all ages. Lily Library in downtown Florence lends books and movies to everyone. They offer free parking, free Wi-Fi, and two-hour sessions on internet-connected computers. They also offer extensive programs for children, including story hours, clubs, and activities for teens, as well as adult programs. The library is open Tuesday and Thursday evenings, Saturdays and Sundays. Find out more at lilylibrary.org. Nine Volt Heart is a music program filled with contemporary roots music with heavy doses of new grass and Americana goodness. It comes to you live every Saturday from 3 to 5 p.m. on WXOJ-FM, Valley Free Radio. The focus of the show is current releases in American string music with a large portion of the show dedicated to who's coming to the Pioneer Valley. Expect lots of interviews, in-studio guests, and ticket giveaways. My name is Ed Malachowski. I'm the host of Nine Volt Heart. Tune in every Saturday afternoon for the best in Americana and newgrass music. Hello, everybody. I'm DJ Panic, host of OK Asia, a program with a wide selection of Asian artists. I like to combine genres from rock, pop, hip-hop, Bollywood, and R&B. So please join me every Saturday from 12 to 2 a.m. on Valley Free Radio. Love Latin music and check out Ritmo Latino. Tune in to WXOJ on Sunday evenings from 6 to 7 p.m. I'm your host, Kat, and I'll be playing a mix of styles from around the world, old school to new. Listen for local talent and upcoming events in the Latino community. So finish out your weekend with Latin style. Ritmo Latino, Sunday, 6 to 7 p.m. here on WXOJLP 103.3 FM. 
Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of Valley Free Radio. River Valley Co-op specializes in fresh, local, and organically grown foods, fresh produce, meat and seafood, cheese and dairy, bread and baked goods, and an in-house deli, along with a wide selection of bulk foods and a large selection of natural and organic grocery items. Owned by its customers, although everyone is welcome. Co-op ownership is not required. Open daily 8 to 10, 330 North King Street, Northampton. Phone 413-584-2665, rivervalleymarket.com. Co-op. Thank you, River Valley Co-op, for your support of free speech in the Pioneer Valley. Hey, kids, let mom help with your science project. This new mom wants her kids' science project to thrive. Too bad she hasn't cracked a science book since 1985. A metathesis reaction? Compounds, mixtures, and elements. Even this baking soda volcano is too big of an experiment. Whoa. Now she's completely forgotten the periodic table. Now she's burning a hole through the kitchen table. Burning with silence. But her kids' love for the mom is truly transparent. Proof you don't have to be perfect to be the perfect parent. Don't tell Dad. You don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Thousands of siblings in foster care will take you just as you are. For more information on how you can adopt, visit AdoptUSKids.org. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids and the Ad Council. Okay, we are back. And so, as promised, we are going to talk about Steve. Now, I'm sure you're wondering, uh, who the heck is Steve? <laughs> well, it's not a who. I, I suppose it's not a, it's not a who, it's a, it's a what. <laughs> and so Steve is actually an acronym for Strong Thermal Emission Velocity Enhancement. It is an atmospheric anomaly that is seen in areas where the aurora is visible, but it actually represents a different form of energetic display. Uh, and so it seems like it is definitely a different atmospheric process. And so, therefore, represents a new type of optical phenomena. I know it's very exciting, <laughs> but it is. It's really exciting because, you know, it's a new thing that we didn't know anything about until recently. That's what I love about science is like, oh, you think you know everything about the world? Ha ha ha. Let me show you these three new things that we learned just yesterday. Anyways. So auroras can be seen in various places, basically every night of the year, for some val value of place and uh, time. So basically auroras are happening every night of the year. But Steve, on the other hand, is only visible a few times a year, and is actually visible from locations closer to the equator than the aurora. So definitely a different thing happening. Now, the aurora are caused when electrons and protons from the magnetosphere, uh, which is the region around the planet that contains the Earth's magnetic field, uh, again, because scientists, one of the cool things about science is that they often name things very, very simply. And sometimes it can get boring, but sometimes it's just easy to be able to say, the magnetosphere, that's where the magnetic field is. <laughs> Anyways. So what happens is that electrons and protons from this region of the um, 
of the sphere around the Earth uh, rain down on the part on parts of the upper atmosphere, uh, which is called the ionosphere. And so basically, the, ion- the ionosphere is so-called because it is full of charged particles or ions. <laughs> And so when those electrons and protons are excited by hitting those charged particles in the ionosphere, they emit light. And so basically, they emit light of varying hues, uh, but mostly the traditional green, red, and blue that you see in most of the pictures of the aurora. Now, Steve, on the other hand which was brought to the attention of scientists in 2016 by the Alberta Aurora Chasers, (laughs) is uh, a little different. So they had noticed a different light, a thin streak of bright white and purple light, which actually ran east-west across the Canadian sky. Now, they initially suspected the light was caused by excited protons, but the light from the excited protons actually falls outside the range of both normal vision and that able to be captured by a normal uh, camera. So basically, it requires special equipment to be photographed. So once researchers sort of got this information from them, they began to study the phenomena with data from satellites and images from ground-based observatories. They found that a stream of fast-moving ions and super-hot electrons was found to be passing through the ionosphere at the same time this phenomena was observed. Now, the researchers believe that this stream might have something to do with the lights, but they aren't sure how or if it really is the culprit. What researchers can now say with certainty is that Steve is not the product of particles raining down into the ionosphere, as happens with Aurora. So they can say with some confidence now that it is a different optical phenomena. Dr. B. Gallardo Lacourt, a physicist at the University of Calgary, and her team, analyzed a Steve event from March 28, 2008, that was visible over eastern Canada. They looked at data from ground-based cameras set up to record aurora over North America. They then compared the image with data, or the images, with data from NOAA's Polar Orbiting Environmental Satellite 17, or POSE 17 which had serendipitously passed over the cameras at the time of the Steve event, which is very cool because that isn't necessarily something that would have happened. So they got really lucky. The satellite actually has an instrument which can measure charged particles precipitating into the ionosphere, which is, of course, again, what causes auroras. POSE 17 detected no charged particles raining down to the ionosphere during the Steve event, which means it is likely produced by an entirely different mechanism, the researchers said. Steve is a new kind of optical phenomena we call sky glow. Our next step is to see whether the streams of fast ions and hot electrons in the ionosphere are creating Steve's light or if the light is produced higher up in the atmosphere. So again... (laughs) Scientists are awesome, but they're not great at naming things. Um, Sometimes, again, this is really good because then, you know, 
you name it what it is. But uh, Skyglow, <laughs> that is their name for Steve. I'm going to stick with Steve because um, <laughs> it's more fun to say, hey, did you know about Steve? Because I'm a dork in case you couldn't have figured that out by now. Anyways, uh, let's look forward to learning more about Steve in the future. And I will definitely look out for it. And if I see another paper, I will definitely get back to you with an update. <laughs> okay, so let us switch gears now and talk about something that has uh, recently broken in the news cycle that is really, really cool. This is like a blockbuster, once-in-a-lifetime find uh, from the world of paleontology. So this is a bone fragment from an ancient teen uh, which shows that she would have had parents from two different extinct hominid species. So the remains of an approximately 13-year-old girl who died more than 50,000 years ago had a mother who was a Neanderthal and a father who was a Denisovan. We knew from previous studies that Neanderthals and Denisovans must have occasionally had children together, said evolutionary geneticist Vivian Slon of, Ma of Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany. But I never thought we would be so lucky as to find an actual offspring of the two groups. Now, Neanderthals and Denisovans most likely evolved from a common ancestor, but over time, somewhere around 390,000 years ago, they split into distinctive but still closely related species. Now, Denisovans remain quite mysterious, though we are learning more about them all the time. The first remains weren't even found until 2010, and they still come from only one location— the Denisova Cave in Siberia, uh, which is apparently hilariously enough named after someone named Dennis. <laughs> um, and so interestingly, both Denisovan and Neanderthal remains have been found in the cave, but it wasn't clear if they inhabited the cave at the same time. The discovery of the fragment of bone from Denisova 11 uh, nicknamed Denny by the researchers, marks a huge step forward in confirming that the two groups not only occupied the same area at the same time, but actually interbred. Now, the bone fragment, uh, most likely part of a tibia, femur, or humerus, was actually found back in 2012 by Russian archaeologists. Initial protein analysis confirmed that it was from a hominid species, and therefore it was sent to the Max Planck Institute for further research. They were able to determine that Denny was at least, at least 13 when she died, over 50,000 years ago again, uh, and they were able to tell the age based on the bone's cortical thickness. Her sex and parentage were determined by DNA samples taken from the bone. An interesting aspect of this genome is that it allows us to learn things about two populations, the, the Neanderthals from the mother's side and the Denisovans from the father's side, said geneticist Fabio Maffacioni of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology. Interestingly, her mother was more closely related to a population of Neanderthals from Western Europe than the population that lived in the area of 
the Denisova cave in Eastern Europe 20,000 years earlier. So that suggests that the Neanderthals were actually traversing back and forth the length of Europe tens of thousands of years before they disappeared. They also found that at least one of the ancestors of Denny's father was also a Neanderthal. So from this single genome, we are able to detect multiple instances of interactions between Neanderthals and Denisovans, said geneticist Benjamin Vernot, also of the Max Planck Institute. And it's a good thing that these remains were able to give us DNA, considering that we still only have a tiny sample of Denisovan remains. Denny is actually only the fifth such specimen to have been found. It is striking that we find this Neanderthal Denisovan child among a handful of ancient individuals whose genomes have been sequenced, said evolutionary geneticist Savante Paavo, director of the Department of Evolutionary Genetics at the Max Planck Institute and senior author of the study. Neanderthals and Denisovans may not have had many may not have had many opportunities to meet, but when they did, they must have meted frequently, much more so than we previously thought. So that is very cool and interesting. Alright, so let's move forward a lot in time uh, and come back to something way more local. So this has also been sort of in the news nationally, but also especially sort of locally in New England. And so you might have also heard of this, but in case you haven't, uh, this is the case of the reappearing unicorn plant. Uh, so this plant has been spotted growing in Maine for the first time in more than 130 years. The plant Altris Farinos is a member of the lily family and features clusters of white tubular flowers wrapping around the long stalk. So it's a bit like a long head of wheat or other tall grass, uh, just with little bits of flower. And so the plant had been documented last in Maine in 1887 near the city of Lewiston. Oddly enough, right near where my sister used to live. Uh, <laughs> the first two specimens were collected in 1874 and 1879 by the botanist Kate Furbish, who is known for her documentation of Maine's flora. The plant is also called white colic root, or just colic root, and prefers to grow in moist, sandy, open ground like meadows or tall grass prairies, places with basically little topsoil. It is known to grow in most of the eastern states and in Ontario, but is actually considered threatened in New York and endangered in both Pennsylvania and Ontario. The new find in Maine consists of a field that so far boasts 300 flowering stems. Not too bad. <laughs> uh, Don Cameron, a botanist with Maine Natural Areas Program, told the Bangor Daily News his theory on why he thinks the plant has suddenly popped up. Some seeds will persist for decades or even centuries in the soil, he told Julia Bailey. Then a fire comes along or a bulldozer moves the soil around and you will suddenly see plants that you have not seen for a long time. But of course, he notes, 
we don't have all the answers. The good news is that it has come back, whatever the mechanism, and even more importantly, the owner of the field is, it seems, rather interested in preserving the plant, uh, according to Cameron, and so that is very exciting because it is always important to have the person who owns the land be interested in conserving the thing that is on it, uh, and unfortunately that is not always the uh, outcome that one gets. So I am very excited that this particular person seems interested in maintaining this really interesting plant. Uh, even if it's just, you know, a little plant, these things are very cool and interesting and, uh, you know, charge a quarter for people to be able to see it, make some money. Um, <laughs> I'd pay a quarter to go and see it. Um, maybe up to a dollar, but probably not more than that. Uh, they're pretty flowers, but there's lots of pretty flowers. <laughs> Though I am very excited that they have come back to Maine because I think it's really important to try and preserve native uh, wildlife of all shapes, sizes, uh, be they flora or fauna. Um, there is a uh, field that I drive by every day that is covered in the uh, purple butterfly bush and every time I look at it I just I want to go in there with a pair of scissors and just start cutting it all out because it's a terrible invasive and it makes me sad to see it and uh, I don't know why they haven't cut it I think maybe uh, perhaps maybe it's because they don't want to spread the seeds I don't know um, I haven't looked into how it spreads but I know, for instance, there's also not weed in my yard, which is extremely vexing, and uh, it is basically impossible to kill it uh, unless you spend years drowning it uh, in uh, darkness and basically doing all sorts of things to get rid of it because it grows as a rhizome. So if you don't get every single piece of root out of your uh, soil. It'll just grow back from that tiny piece of root. <sighs> Sigh. <laughs> very disappointing, very upsetting. Okay, let us swing away from uh, flora and fauna and talk about something that's completely uncontroversial. Instead of that, instead of fun plants, let's talk about something completely uncontroversial. <laughs> um, so what I am talking about is let's take a quick dive into dietary science, because there's no controversy there. Uh, so first off, Karen Michaels, an epidemiologist at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health, uh, and also the University of Freiburg, where she serves as the director of the Institute for Prevention and Tumor Epidemiology. Uh, gave a talk recently in uh, or at the University of Freiburg, and her talk was titled Coconut Oil and Other Nutritional Errors. <laughs> she called the substance one of the worst things you can eat and suggested it was as good as for one's health as pure poison. She is not pulling any punches. Um, I would suggest listening to the whole thing, except it's in German. Um, so unfortunately, I don't have a uh, the ability to speak German. And so this does unfortunately have to come from a secondary source. Um, 
but I think that she's definitely right. And so like other forms of fat that are solid at room temperature, coconut oil has a high proportion of saturated fat. This type of fat is known to raise levels of LDL cholesterol, so-called bad cholesterol, and thus potentially the risk of cardiovascular disease. Now, yes, there is still some controversy, that's a strong word, some disagreement, some uncertainty, that's what I'm looking for, some uncertainty in exactly how cholesterol works in our system. We still don't quite understand it, but uh, I think it's pretty clear that things that are high in saturated fat are demonstrably not good for us. And so coconut fat contains more than 80% saturated fat. That is more than twice the amount in lard and 60% more than in beef drippings. Now, with the popularity of this fat being touted by so-called health gurus everywhere these days, uh, the American Heart Association reviewed the evidence for its health benefits last year. And what they found was that while 75% of the public believed it to be a healthy fat, only 37% of nutritionists agreed. Um, and notice they say nutritionists there and not dietitians. I don't know if that's a slip, but um, remember that a nutritionist can be anybody. Uh, a registered dietitian has an actual uh, degree, has actual um certifications and things like that. So if you're ever going to someone to actually look at your diet, look for a registered dietitian and not a nutritionist. And so they found that because coconut oil increases LDL cholesterol, a cause of CVD, cardiovascular disease, and has no known offsetting favorable effects, we advise against the use of coconut oil. And similarly, the British Nutrition Foundation stated that there is to date no strong scientific evidence to support health benefits from eating coconut oil. And so they suggested that you should use it sparingly like any other substance high in saturated fat. And so despite what people like Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop ugh, would like you to believe, coconut oil hasn't been shown to have any health events health benefits, despite arguments that it might act differently from other high saturated fat substances, there is nothing to show that so far. Dietitians suggest you stick to fats known to be better for the heart, including olive, vegetable, and sunflower oils. <sighs> much, much, much better for you. Olive oil, use olive oil, use vegetable oil, something like that use oil sparingly as much as you can, uh, you know, use ceramic nonstick, uh, cookware, things like that to reduce it. Um, yeah, definitely don't slather coconut oil all over everything. Okay. So let us wrap up tonight with another completely uncontroversial study. <laughs> um, so we're going to look at this new huge study on alcohol consumption very quickly. So you know, I'd say that headlines blaring no safe level of alcohol consumption were overblown in the usual clickbait, except for the fact that there actually is a commentary in The Lancet where the original paper was published titled, No Level of Alcohol Consumption Improves Health. So let's talk about that. 
Uh, once again, I think it is important that we talk about uh, things like absolute versus relative risk, as well as population versus individual risk. Now, they note that the health risks associated with alcohol are massive, said Dr. Emanuela Gakadu uh, of the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation at the University of Washington and senior author of the study. Our findings are consistent with other recent research which found clear and convincing correlations between drinking and premature death, cancer, and cardiovascular problems. Zero alcohol consumption minimizes the overall risk of health loss. Now, this may very well be the case. Um, and you know, it's the case for many things, including some foods. Zero consumption is ideal. However, we know that's never going to happen. So let's talk about it very quickly and hit some of the highlights. First of all, the study does not distinguish between beer, wine, and liquor, so nothing is safe from their conclusions. However, what the researchers did was compare population-level risks to individual risks. They looked at data for the protective health benefits of alcohol and compared those to the negative health benefits of alcohol and found that overall the negative health benefits outweighed those of the protective. It goes without saying that the overconsumption of alcohol can lead to a host of negative health outcomes. And so the study looked at health outcomes from 195 countries and territories between 1990 and 2016. They found that overall death rates from alcohol consumption were, perhaps unsurprisingly, higher in most age groups for men than for women, though they suggest that for populations above the age of 50, cancers accounted for the largest portion of total alcohol attributable deaths, with female deaths being higher than male deaths, especially because of things like breast cancer, um, which made it uh, a higher toll on women. Now, as I've mentioned, though, population-level data, while it can be a general guide to the individual, is not able to give absolute answers about outcomes for the individual. The most important thing to do is to first abstain from overconsumption of alcohol, and especially from the use of alcohol in conjunction with any activity that requires fine motor skills like driving. Uh, a huge amount of deaths related to alcohol are from drunk driving. And also, when you can, decrease the amount of alcohol you drink. But I'm a realist. I know people aren't going to stop drinking altogether. But just know that it's better to not drink than to drink in general. All right, I have to wrap it up for tonight. Uh, please do stay tuned for Civil Politics coming up next. They will be featuring... Uh, two candidates for something. I'm sorry, I've forgotten what. Um, but some local uh, thing that's happening around here. Oh, goodness. Anyways, have a good night. This show is part of the Planetside Productions Network. For more information, please visit www.planetside.pro. And thank you for listening.